Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. That was a beautiful song. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. How are you? All right, let's go. Matthew chapter 6 is where we find ourselves as you're opening to Matthew 6. We're going to cover just a few verses today. Matthew 6, chapter 6, verses 16 through 18 as we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. As always, we mention this every Sunday. And we mention it for a reason because we mean it. We'd love for you to actually have your Bible open in front of you, even though we'll have the scriptures on the screen. And if you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack in front of you and keep that Bible as your own, as, as our gift to you. If you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, you can find Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18 on the, the numbers, the page numbers that are written there, depending on which copy of the same version of the Bible uh, that I'll be reading from that you have. It is so good to have uh, Jeremy and Samantha here. Um, we are so grateful for you guys, and we love you dearly, and uh, we're, we're just thrilled to be in partnership in the gospel with you. Um, so I could go on, but I'm not going to. We'll, uh, we'll save that for after church. Um, and before we read the text and pray, uh, I want to mention that this morning is, uh, you may have found in your bulletin, a, an insert for Sound Choices Pregnancy Clinic to remind you to pray for this crisis pregnancy center here in our city. This Sunday, nationally, amongst evangelical, Bible-believing churches, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And that's why we put this insert in here to remind us as a church to pray for the unborn, to pray for God's grace to mothers in our country who are in difficult pregnancies that may be considering abortion, to pray for the work of, of a crisis pregnancy centers, and we want to pray in particular for Sound Choices today, and we thank you for the many people in this room that help to volunteer to serve mothers that are in uh, very difficult situations, to persuade them and plead with them to keep their children. We also are aware that there may be women in this room and men in this room that have participated in abortions in the past, and we want you to know that we uh, love you. There's grace in the Lord. You are forgiven if you have turned from sin and trusted in Christ. But yet we, as, as Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians, see this uh, plight in our nation of abortion as a scourge and something that we want to actively work against, not merely as a political stance, but as a means of protecting and caring for even the least of these. So we're going to pray for that in just a moment. And then, as Will mentioned, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, which has become a national holiday in our country, commemorating the work of the civil rights movement back in the 60s. And we want to pray as well for racial reconciliation in our country. Seems like in this past year and a half or so, or a couple years, it's, it's become even more tense and volatile. And we want to pray for for the gospel to sink in our hearts in this church and in our city and in our nation and for, again, that not to be a political issue, but for caring for the unborn and 
reconciling work between races to be something that is a consequence of the gospel seizing people's hearts. So let's pray for the Lord to do that, and then we'll, we'll read our text and work our way through uh, the scriptures. Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you that we can abide with you as we sing this morning. We often, we often are prone to leave you, but you never leave us. Thank you that we can sing those words and they're true. Lord, thank you for Jeremy and Samantha and their labor of love for the gospel in a faraway place. Lord, I pray that this next week or so would be a blessing to them as their home. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for crisis pregnancy centers all across this land. We pray for the unborn. We pray that you would stir the heart of politicians and those in power and that there would come a day soon when abortion would not be legal abortion, would not be the law of the land, that this access to, to killing the unborn would be stopped, and that simultaneously our churches would be filled with adopted children and fostered children, and that you would rescue us from this scourge You would change the mind of politicians and officials. And that you would protect the most vulnerable among us. Lord, we pray for racial reconciliation in our country. We are so aware of the tension and the stress. And we pray, God, for you to move on our hearts so that we might love one another deeply. That we would reconcile where there's been pain and that we would do more than just have a political stance, but that we would care for our brothers and sisters and people from every tribe and tongue. Lord, do this, I pray, for the glory of your name and for the witness of the gospel. And as we turn our attention to your text, Lord, would you, would you open our eyes to see, as we even talk about this idea of fasting, that we need you. I pray that as we think about this issue, that you would develop in us a hunger and a thirst for the only bread that can satisfy, which is Christ. I pray that you'd do this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we've been working our way through this Sermon on the Mount, and in chapter 6 in particular, Jesus has been admonishing his followers, not just those that were listening to him then, but through the centuries, about this pursuit of the reward, a reward that comes from God in heaven, not a reward that is horizontal or from people around you. So he's he's encouraging us to practice our righteousness for the reward of God and not for the applause of men. And so we looked at, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, giving to the needy and doing that for God's reward. And then we looked at last week, praying and the Lord's instruction on how to pray and that we should pray to uh, for God's reward and pleasure for our hearts, not so that other people would see us. And so this morning we come to this third example of seeking God's reward and this idea of fasting. Now here's the deal, is this is one of the reasons why we just preach through the books of the Bible and because we would probably skip a verse like this. this is, fasting is something that many Christians generally know a little bit about, are sort of vaguely familiar with, but we... Let's just confess it. In fact, I'll confess it. Let's just get it out there. We don't do this like we should, nearly as much as we should, 
And so let's just all sort of, okay, let's acknowledge it, and, um, and then let's dig into the text, okay? And we're going to learn this morning about this idea of what fasting is and what Jesus teaches. So let me read in Matthew chapter 6, just a couple verses, verses 16 through 18. Jesus says this, And when you fast, and there's the convicting sentence right out of the chute there, not if you fast, but when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so here's our our plan this morning. We're going to look at a little bit of history of fasting in the Bible and orient ourselves to that. Then we're going to look at wrong motives, a couple wrong motives for fasting and then a few right motives for fasting. And then we're going to be challenged as we look at Because remember what uh, our favorite dead British guy said, Charles Spurgeon. He said that every text in the Bible has a, has a, has a road that leads to the gospel. Just like in London. He, he was from London. And he said that every hamlet in England, there's a road that leads to London. Well, likewise, in the Bible, every text has a road that leads to the gospel. And at the end of this, we're going to see how ultimately... What we want to be instructed about this morning is not some mechanical carrying out of a religious duty, but it is ultimately about uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which can only be found in Christ, which we're going to see is, in fact, the gospel. So, okay, a couple thoughts about fasting in the Bible before we look at some wrong motives for fasting. The Bible actually doesn't say a whole lot about fasting. In fact, in the Old Testament, Fasting is commanded or prescribed as something that God's people should do only one day out of the year. So in Leviticus chapter 16, we won't take the time to read it, but Leviticus 16 is an incredibly important chapter in the Old Testament. It's the instruction of how God's people should carry out this thing called the Day of Atonement. And so in the Old Testament, God gave the law and He gave gave sacrifices to be a kind of picture of the need of God's people to be made right with Him through sacrifice, which all of that is just a picture of the gospel, the work of Jesus to come. But at this point in redemptive history, God has given these sacrifices that, that His people are to sacrifice bulls and goats to to atone for their sin. And on this day of atonement, they were to, and this is the wording of the Old Testament, that they were to afflict themselves, which in that language meant to to fast, to really literally make themselves uncomfortable. And that's the only time in the Bible where it is commanded by God, one day out of the year, on the Day of Atonement, where you are atoning for the sins of the people nationally, which again we know is a as a shadow, a picture of Christ who will come and finally and fully take our sins away, we are too fast. God's people were too fast, he says in the Old Testament. Now, the reason we don't fast on, uh, say, a particular day in the New Testament is because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And so all of the Old Testament and all of the commandments of the Old Testament are pointing towards this way that God has called people to live from the heart, but ultimately we can never obey God's law perfectly. But the good news of the gospel is is that Jesus comes and does obey the law for us perfectly. And so that's why you don't find Christians necessarily 
uh, holding a national or a, a church-wide fast on a particular day of atonement or around Easter. But in the New Testament, we do see fasting does continue as a practice of, of followers of Jesus and of, of the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees would fast twice a week, not because they had to or because it was commanded, but because they it just felt like it was something good for them to do. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here, is that he's pointing at the way in which they were hypocritically fasting. They were kind of making it known. So remember, we've been reading this all through Matthew chapter 6. They were kind of letting everybody know, hey, hey everybody, I'm giving to the poor. And then they were saying, hey everybody, I'm praying. And now they're sort of making themselves look really disheveled, disheveled and, and, and hungry and gloomy. And they're kind of letting everybody know that, hey, we are fasting. And Jesus is, is pointing at and pushing against this, this fasting for attention from other people. But that's what the Pharisees did. And in fact, they questioned Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, which we won't take the time to read, why his disciples didn't fast when other religious leaders did fast at that time. And Jesus' explanation to them is that, hey, I'm here now. The bread of heaven, the, the, the bridegroom is here. There's going to come a time later on when I'm gone. In other words, speaking of after his resurrection and ascension, when you will need to fast, but I'm here now, so you don't need to fast. And fasting is something that followers of Jesus continue to do in the New Testament. And we're going to read about that a little bit more in a second. So there's a kind of a background of fasting in the Bible. In the Old Testament, just one day. But in the New Testament, we see these religious leaders doing it for sort of religious hypocrisy to make themselves look good. So then that brings us to the wrong motives for fasting. I want us to look at two wrong motives for fasting. And the first is, and we see it in our text, is for attention, right? They were obviously doing this fasting, this denying of food. And maybe we should even define what fasting is. Fasting is, if you're not aware, and this whole time you're like, what's he talking about? He should, I should have done this before. Fasting is, at its core, definition, abstaining from food for a particular spiritual purpose. And we're going to talk about those spiritual purposes in a second, but it's abstaining from food. But really, we can think of it, I think it's broadened in the Christian life to be abstaining from anything that is legitimate for some particular spiritual purpose. In fact, it's where we get our word breakfast from. Because you go through the night and you are not eating, you're fasting, you're abstaining from food while you're sleeping. And then in the morning you break your fast of sleeping. Unless you get up at the middle of the night and, you know, eat. But you're breaking your fast. And so fasting is abstaining from fruit food for some spiritual purpose. So the wrong motives for fasting are... One is attention. But doesn't this apply? And that's what's going on here. These hypocrites are just kind of letting everybody know. But doesn't this, let's not just leave it there because we could, we could very easily say, well, you know, I've never actually fasted, first of all. And so certainly I've never fasted and made myself look sort of gloomy. So whew, I got a Sunday off, conviction free, right? No, but let's go a little bit deeper. I think the application here is clear is that don't we do lots of other things for attention, though? I mean, come on, in the, in the text, Jesus gives the example of giving for, for, for attention, praying for attention, fasting for attention. But I mean, we could beat each other up all Sunday long about just social media, right? The humble brag, you know. We all know what that is. Oh, I'm so messed up. 
Just throw it out there. You're waiting for everybody to post. No, you're not. Oh, man, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but it's not just that you're... Now, some of you are righteous. That's why I'm not on Facebook, Brad. Praise God. I am among the righteous here. I am, I'm not... Well, okay. All right. I see a couple of you like, yeah, that's me. But, I mean, it, aren't we all sort of masters at bending the conversation to ourselves? Aren't we? I'm so good. I mean, come on, we are so manipulative, and you're just in a conversation with somebody, and they're talking about something, and somebody's got, and you're just kind of, you're just maneuvering behind the scenes to somehow bring up some situation that you have, which is kind of like that. Oh, no, let me tell you. Well, that's really, really nice. You did that wonderful thing. Let me tell you about that time when I did something. Or you just kind of throw a little tidbit out there that will be a little hook to get them to ask you, oh, oh, you asked about that? Well, since you brought it up, right? Don't we just all kind of do that? There's this thing in our soul where we just want attention and it's the wrong motive for serving God and certainly it's the wrong motive for fasting. So not only is seeking attention, which is going on here in our text, the wrong motive, but also we see in the scriptures where at times God's people He would admonish them because they were fasting for a a transaction with God. And I think that's where people that have practiced fasting maybe have really had to wrestle with this thing. that we, We have this idea that fasting is this special sort of spiritual level where if I'm really serious about something and I add fasting to it, then God will know that I'm really in this to win this, and now he will be sort of spiritually obligated to meet me halfway and answer my prayers in a little bit more intense way than if I hadn't fasted. So in other words, fasting is kind of like a transaction. I'm really serious about this, God, and answer my seriousness with action on your part because I am going without a sandwich for lunch, right? And that's exactly what's happening in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 58. Let me read a little bit out of uh, this chapter in Isaiah where God is, he's, he's, uh, he's really uh, aiming at his people. He's, 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 he's chastising them for fasting in this way to just get something from God. So in Isaiah 58, chapter, chapter 58, verse 1, he says, Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. And so at that point, God is speaking to Isaiah saying, do this. And now in verse 2, he's going to kind of give a commentary on the state of the people, their heart. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. And so it's like God is almost kind of having a conversation with the prophet Isaiah right now. He's saying, you know, proclaim my ways to them. And then he's giving Isaiah a bit of a commentary on just the state of these people. Who are these people? They think they're so righteous. They're acting. They're coming to me like they, they are seeking after me. They ask, for, ask me for righteousness. They delight to draw near uh, to God. Verse 3. And now he, he, he's, he's speaking here. Why have we fasted? He's speaking. He, God, is, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah as if this is what the people are saying to him. Why have we fasted? This is the people speaking back to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? We've humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? 
Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, God says back to them, and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So God is it's like he's having a conversation here as he's revealing this to Isaiah. Verse 3, why have we fasted, the people say, and you see it not. In other words, we're, we're doing this for you, God. Why are you not answering us? And isn't that, I mean, again, that's not just with fasting. Again, don't, let's not let ourselves off the hook just because we haven't played the contract game with God in our fast. We do this all the time, don't we? I mean, come on, God, I really got this thing I need to do, so I'll tell you what, I am going to be serious about my devotions this week. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I spent 10 minutes every morning this week reading my Bible. Because I have a big interview coming up next week. And so, no, I don't, actually. It's not, now, now you guys are going to say, oh, Brad's leaving. No, no, I did. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I hope, I hope to die here, like, in, right, like right here. But... I'm speaking sort of like theoretically, right? Don't we do that? We kind of put in a little bit. We put in a little bit and we expect something back from God. And God is saying, I am not contractually obligated to you. It's not an I scratch your back, you scratch mine situation. That's not what fasting is about. So wrong motives for fasting. Attention. Transaction. All right, let's look at a few right motives for fasting as we, as we uh, dwell on that, and then we'll land this plane. Right motives for fasting. Well, first, I think, clearly, as we see it coupled in the Bible, is to help us pray more earnestly. So, as I mentioned, in Leviticus 16, it's the only time where really fasting is prescribed or commanded by God. But it's not the only time that it's mentioned. We see several times in the Old Testament where uh, fasting would be coupled with repentance. So like in Nehemiah chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9, we see these leaders of God's people coupling fasting with prayer for repentance. It's, 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 it's really them just going to God, afflicting themselves, saying, God, we need to see you. And we then see throughout the Scriptures, this idea of coupling fasting with prayer to help us pray more earnestly. So one example is in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Let me flip there. We'll have it on the screen. You may not need to flip there in your Bibles because it might take you a while to find. But let me just read Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse, verse 1. There's this situation where God's people are getting attacked by these enemies. And the leader of God's people, Jehoshaphat, says, we gotta, we got to pray and we got to fast. Verse 1, he says, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, far beyond the sea. And behold, they are Hazan on Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek, to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And so God's people are gathering together and they are coupling fasting with prayer so that they might pray more earnestly. And we see something of the like in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13. Let me read a couple instances in Acts 13 and 14. In Acts 13, 
The first few verses, the church is forming, they're gathering, the disciples and the apostles are are beginning to get some traction, and now they're going to send some apostles, they're going to send some leaders from the church out to take the gospel into the unreached areas. And in, in Acts chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch, Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Rabbit trail. I'm about to do a rabbit trail on you, and let me just mention something here. Isn't that instructive that the point of the New Testament church isn't to gather a bunch of people together so they can be one big awesome church. They, they send people out, right? They send people out. So praise God for Jeremy and Samantha who, you know what, if it was my heart, I'd just have them stay here. Just stay here and just be here. And, and I'd, I'd have everybody stay, right? That's our natural tendency. But the Holy Spirit has got a work for us to do, not to come to gather together on Sundays and have awesome services so we can go home and be happy with ourselves. But He gathers us and He calls us for some of us to be sent and the others to send. Amen? Rabbit trail done. Okay, what were we talking about? Fasting. All right. And so he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So again, there's this sense that we're seeking God in a more earnest way. And we're going to fast, not because now God is contractually obligated to answer our prayers because we're fasting. But because when we are depriving ourselves of food... We are reminded just how dependent we are on God alone to answer our prayers. That's what's behind fasting. Not, oh God, I'm going to give you a little extra juice so that it might wake you up from your slumber. No, it's coupling prayer and fasting on these special occasions so that God so that we would realize and be reminded in our prayers. In other words, what we're moving when we're coupling prayer and fasting is we're not trying to, we're not trying to uh, motivate God. We're trying to motivate ourselves more deeply because we're more acutely aware of our utter dependence on God for all things. That's what's going on when they're coupling prayer and fasting. In Acts chapter 14, we won't take the time to read it, but we see another instance of where the apostles in the early church coupled prayer with fasting. So one right motive for prayer, or one right motive for fasting is to help us pray more earnestly. Secondly, another right motive for fasting, this is where it gets a little painful, is that it helps to reveal the dominance of our appetites. Doesn't it? <laughs> I found a couple of people, ooh, 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 ooh. You know, the, you know what fasting is like? It's like a diagnostic tool for our spirits. If you go into a if you got something broken or some painful thing, um, you know, you go to a doctor and they give you an MRI or an x-ray. They may even make you drink this dye that goes through your whole system so that when they put you through this tube, it kind of lights up so they can see what's wrong. Well, fasting is kind of like that diagnostic tool for the soul. It shows us how much we are led by our desires 
and how much our belly and our appetites are really our, our God. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, let me start in verse uh, 17, and he's contrasting people that we should follow and people that we shouldn't follow. And he says in Philippians 3, verse 17, Brothers, join me in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Listen to his description of them. Verse 19, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in shame with minds set on earthly things. When we fast regularly, it reminds us areas, it shows us, it identifies to us areas of our life where really our God is our belly or our appetite. And maybe we're not talking about food here. Maybe we're talking about binging on Netflix or some other thing that we just wish we just got to have. Listen to what Martin Luther, the German reformer from the 1500s said. I love this. This is good. In fact, I'm thankful to be an American. If I wasn't an American, I would want to be an Italian like from Italy because that's the, my ancestry. If I wasn't Italian, I think I'd want to be Mexican because I grew up a, like a block from Mexico. I just love the Mexicans. So other than those connections, if I wasn't American, man, I'd love to be German. These Germans. I, this is Martin Luther. This is German cat. He, 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 he had it right. Listen to this. He said, I would also be glad if at certain times, <laughs> once a week or as often as it might seem best, there were no evening meal except a piece of bread and something to drink to keep everything from being used up with the kind of incessant gobbling and guzzling that we Germans do and to teach people to have a little more moderately, to live a little bit more moderately, especially those who are young, sturdy, and strong. I like that. It's just a, what, 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 what Luther is calling for. There is this abstinence from food because of the incessant gobbling and guzzling of our culture. Don't we just gobble and guzzle, right? I mean, come on, we'll do it. Some of us may do it this afternoon at lunch, although hopefully you won't do it now because the Holy Spirit will convict you, right? We'll go and we have to wait for a little bit longer. In fact, Jennifer and I went out to uh, dinner for um, my birthday on Wednesday night. Turned 45, halfway to 90. <laughs> we had a good pasta meal, Carabas. But would you know that we had to wait like, I ordered a couple cannolis, because you can't have pasta without a couple cannolis, right? We had to wait like seven minutes for dessert. what's going on over here, right? And as I was reading Luther's quote, I was just convicted about my gobbling and guzzling, right? And I just want, just, come on, give it to me. And when we fast, it reveals just how dominant our appetites are. No, again, friends, let's, let's not let ourselves off the hook if we just don't have a big appetite. Our appetites are more than just food. Maybe they're Facebook likes, or maybe they're Netflix entertainment, or maybe they're the internet, or maybe they're working out, or 
Maybe it's snacking. There's a thousand different things, and I'm just going to trust that the Holy Spirit will make application to our souls about what it is in our lives that we gobble and guzzle. And when we gobble and guzzle, we trick ourselves to thinking we comfort our souls with the false medicine of this world. And what fasting does is it shocks us and reminds us and sheds light on us how dominant our appetites are. Another right motive for fasting, a third right motive, is that it helps us form the habit of preferring God. It helps us, you know, just to kind of practice remembering God as we couple it occasionally with special times of prayer, and then as we do it regularly in some way in our life, whatever that is. We're going to talk about that at the end. And we win, not if, but when we fast, it's, it's forming a small habit to set our heart afresh on God. It's like there's this mechanism, this preference mechanism in all of our hearts. And fasting is like it's recalibrating that on a regular basis. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 17. Now, he's not talking specifically about fasting, But I think that the point that Paul is making here uh, has much application to this idea of fasting. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, and I think to a large degree that's just about everybody in this room, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, so thank God for food and the internet and entertainment and all, and cannolis. Thank God for these things. We should richly enjoy them. But one way that we can train our soul not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches or the applause of man or whatever other thing that I often let medicate and comfort my soul is by regularly removing those things from my life to help me to remember to form the habit of preferring God. And fasting helps us to do that. And then finally, one right motive, another right motive for fasting, and I think this is the heart of the text and the heart of what it means to be a Christian, and this is where we find the gospel in this text, is that it reminds us that only God can truly satisfy. This is the reward. So Jesus says in our text, he says, don't, don't fast for the reward of people, fast for the reward of God. So what does Jesus mean when he says the reward of God? Well, certainly he doesn't mean like some momentary answered prayer. It's got to be deeper than that because if we're just fasting for God to sort of answer our prayer in the moment, that's the very thing that the prophet Isaiah castigated God's people for, for fasting in that way. So what is this reward? This reward is something deeper than a temporary answered prayer. It is finding our satisfaction in God alone. And when we wean ourselves periodically from this world, we remind ourselves that only God can satisfy. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 
Verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Fasting regularly will help our souls reorient on that and remember that and remind us that only God can satisfy. Reynolds read from John chapter 6, verse 35, uh, earlier this morning, but let me read a few verses before that in John 6, and we'll end, we'll end on this. John 6, verse, verse 25 is where we'll start, and what's happening in John 6 is that Jesus has fed the 5,000, he's walked on water, and now the disciples and the followers, the people that were there are trying to find him, because where he fed them, he walked across the sea to the other side, and so they're scurrying around to find him, and in verse 25 they find him. And it says this, when they found him on the other side of John 6, verse 25, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them in verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, this is what it means to to be right with God, to serve God, to obey God, not to go about doing a bunch of stuff, to please Him, whether it's fasting or giving to the poor or praying, but ultimately the only thing that you can do to please God is to believe in Him whom He sent. And He sent Jesus, who, became, who was God, who became a man to die, to bear the wrath of God for our sins, to rise again in victory, to give us life, to call us to follow Him, to joy. And Jesus is saying that believing in me, in him whom he sent, is the work of God. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And as Reynolds read earlier in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And when we fast, when we work this into our, our routine as God's people, it's like we are resetting our hearts to remind ourselves that as I get hungry, or as I get antsy because I can't watch TV that day or post on social media, as I get that itch, you know, I want, oh, I want, I want to just medicate my soul. As we get antsy in that moment, in that moment when we're fasting and we're giving up that thing, we are reminding ourselves that the only thing that will truly satisfy us is not to break the fast with bread that we eat that ultimately is going to be burned away and we're going to be hungry again. 
or a show that we binge that ultimately would be over and we move on to the next. But the only thing that will truly satisfy is feasting on Christ and what He has done. Our greatest need is not hunger, but it's to be right with a holy God, to have our sins forgiven, to be atoned for, to be right with Him. And fasting regularly shines a light on that greatest of all human needs. So, what are we going to do? Well, we have a couple options. Oh, well, thank you, Brad. That was an, a helpful sermon on fasting. I feel more instructed now. Thank you very much. Yes. Well, I know about fasting now. Uh, that's the way we leave this. We, we, it's a very dangerous place to be, isn't it? When you fast, not if you fast. So let's just confess. We don't fast nearly as enough as we should. Maybe at all. And maybe it's because too often in our lives, our God, lowercase g, is our bellies. And maybe it's not just our physical appetites, but it's our heart that is longing for the approval of men. And right now, God's Holy Spirit is calling us to wean ourselves from that so that we might see and savor God more. Not so that God's heart would be changed towards us, but so that our heart would be changed towards God and we would be more satisfied in Him and we would pray more passionately and we would live for Him more clearly and we would be less distracted by the things of this world, the desires that choke out our hearts, and we would be more fruitful, more joyful people for the glory of God. Not when, not if, but when you fast, Jesus says. Let's be people that wean ourselves from this world and set our hope in heaven. Let's pray. Uh, Father, my burden now is for two groups of people. There's Christians in this room who were prone to just sort of say, oh, well, that was helpful. Yeah. And my, my instincts are so often to just sort of overcook it and give three or four steps. We've got to do this. And okay, let's call it church-wide fast and let's all do it. And, and those, those are very, very helpful things for us to do. And we've done them in the past and maybe we should do them again, Lord. But, but now, Lord, for... For believers in Jesus that are in this room, would you, would you, by your Holy Spirit, put your finger on something that we need to get in the practice of regularly separating ourselves from, whether it's food or Facebook. Put your finger on it and show us, God, how dependent we are on that and how we find our hope in those things too often rather than you. And let us determine, as, as James 4 says, to him who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Lord, if there's something that you are calling us to, you're calling us to say no to for a temporary time and to do that regularly in our lives, Lord, would we resolve to obey 
right now. Not so that you would now be obligated to bless us, but so that we would wean our heart from this world and be rude to heaven. Or do that for the Christian in this room. That's my burden for me and for my brothers and sisters in this room. And my second burden, Lord, is for is for a person that came into this room that is not yet trusting in Christ. And this has been sort of confusing and religious sounding to them. And they're thinking, okay, well, gosh, I was wanting something practical. And they're talking about fasting. And Lord, Lord, would, by your Holy Spirit, would you cut through their misunderstanding and maybe their confusion? And would you, would you Lord, would you just show that dear one who's in this room, who's who's not trusting in you, who maybe came in unbelieving, Lord, would you show them that the only thing that can satisfy their soul is Jesus. The only thing that can make them right. The only thing that can, that can satisfy that longing, that appetite of their soul is you. And what you have done in your son Jesus to come and live and obey you perfectly and to lay down his life on the cross to bear your wrath, to bear the punishment that should have been ours and to rise again in victory. Now, to call us not to begrudging obedience or religious duty, but to joy and satisfaction in him as we trust and follow you and put our hope, not in riches or our righteousness or our intelligence or our standing, but to put our hope in you, God, show that dear one who's in this room, who's never done that, that their only hope is to put their hope in you by trusting in Christ. By saying, Jesus, I know that there's something wrong with my soul and nothing seems to satisfy. And I'm just like a beggar that goes from one thing to another. Lord, show that person right now that their only hope is to trust in Jesus alone and he alone will satisfy. And friend, if that is you, listen, when the music begins to play, I want you to come, I want you to find somebody that's a Christian. Maybe it would help you to come down front here while we're singing and praying and for you just to come find one of the pastors. We'll be kind of standing down here in the front. Just come to the front and find one of us and say, I, I need Jesus. Like I, I may have not understood everything that happened here today, but I need Jesus. I need the bread, the only bread that can truly satisfy, which is Christ. You don't leave this room today without, without doing that. And Father, as we seek you, as we worship, as we pray, as we confess, as we repent, meet us. As we come around the Lord's table, for those of us that are Christians, this communion table is open. If that's you, come and feast on Christ and remember His work on the cross as we respond in worship by receiving the bread and the cup, Lord. Recalibrate our hearts to the bread of heaven, Jesus, who alone can satisfy. May we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And may we be satisfied. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Let's all stand, friends, as we respond to God.